I was being taught how to taste for European flavors. You know, the tarragon sauce is like this, and this is what the tarragon is, and this is how it should come through. And it was just a little bit of a point where I thought, I don't need to learn how to taste Middle Eastern flavors. Maybe that's maybe that's what I should be doing. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Australia, thanks to migration patterns, has had a wonderful connection with Lebanon. In the last 30 years, the colour, vibrancy and fragrant cuisine of Lebanon has helped shape the culinary landscape here in Australia. There are some that have carved a path for Lebanese cuisine and shed new light on its beauty. Joseph Aboud is the owner and chef of Rumi in Brunswick East, Melbourne. Joseph, how are you? Good, good. Great to uh, be chatting with you. I'm a bit of a fan, Huck. I used to read your column in uh, Food Service. <laughs> you know, uh, cheap ass that I am, used to get the free magazine <laughs> quite happily and read read your column and, and uh, Tony Eldred's column side by side. And I'm quite, quite uh, flattered to be chatting now. <laughs> well, I'm flattered that um, that you remember those days. It's uh, you brought up a lot of uh, memories for for myself then. And the interesting thing is that uh, you've had your restaurant for around 16 years now. It's it's a long time for a restaurant. Well, what's it been like having having the, a venue like that for such a long period of time? Uh, yeah, ne- next week is uh, Queen's birthday. Is uh, 16 years. Um, it's a journey, that's for sure. Uh, there's, you know, you're in it, it's a marriage ultimately and there's the ups and the downs and, and it's a, it can be a struggle and it can be a joy and it's been all of those things. And, um, you know, I spoke to uh, Danny Vallant about a year ago and was in a very different headspace um, on the uh, Dirty Linen podcast and, uh, you know, it's probably a, a reflection of what it, is like to be in a long-term restaurant. Um, you know, I was at a pretty low point then and uh, feeling much better now. And, and uh, yeah, you you go from the joys of and the excitement of, of, of opening something um, and then things happen outside of your control very quickly. And, you know, for us, um, we sort of were on the media's radar uh, a lot, a lot uh, more than I thought we would be. We, we in fact opened up in Brunswick because I really thought if I stuffed it up, well, no one comes to Brunswick, so no one, no one will ever know. No one will ever know. So um, that was quite a surprise, and and so it took on a life of its own from from that point. But tell us about Lebanese cuisine in Australia. You've been a very big part of its of its evolution. Have you? But how have you seen it changed over the last two decades? Uh, it's it's sort of getting uh, it, it seems to be the the wave seems to be building. Um, it does feel a little bit like we're on the cusp of something uh, uh, quite quite impressive with with Middle Eastern food. I think um, you know Jimmy's falafel up in Sydney sort of goes to show um, where it's sort of hit, and I think Simon's doing an amazing job there and. Um, he often sends me photos of the line, the lineup out the front. I don't know whether to brag or <laughs> what that's for, but uh, it's very, very impressive. And I think that's probably a, a sign of things to come for Middle Eastern food. It's it's really great to see so many people um, really taking it to the next level. And um, if I've had any uh, sort of hand in that, that's that that's amazing. I think you know 
for for Lebanese food. We, you know, Greg Malouf was sort of the first to really break that mould. And, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, there was a little bit happening after that. And then, yeah, Rumi came along and, and I was able to sort of maybe, uh, I don't know, make it more every day. So, you know, taking on those those ingredients and those philosophies and that approach that maybe, um, you know, a lot of people didn't experience through uh, O'Connell's with Greg or Momo. Um, you know, we're, we've had hundreds of people through the restaurant every, every week. So uh, it's been really great to be able to share that that style of, of Middle Eastern food with, with everyone. Well, I want to go more in depth about Rumi shortly, but take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family? Uh, food, I think for, for, for many Lebanese families, is a little bit taken for granted. Uh, it, there's just um, no doubt that you uh, that it plays a very important role in the family. But I don't know many Lebanese families that talk too much about provenance or technique or, you know, you would only mention it if something was wrong, you know. <laughs> there would only be talk of, Mum, what, what have you done? What have you done? This isn't right today. You know, so um, uh, only, only in, my, in my sort of older years have I come to uh, remember to also credit Mum when, when the food's spot on and, you know. Uh, but we've never, never spoken about, you, you know, wh- where did you get these from or what are they or is this the season for it? it you just did it. And um, I think that reflects a little bit in, um, in the food at Rumi. It's simple, it's tasty, it's bold. Um, we have trouble sort of singing its praises too much. It's more uh, let's just eat and, and be happy. Um, so, yeah, food, food's a really big part of, of the culture just in a way that's not so much uh, celebrated, I think. And, and I think we're starting to do that because, partly because I think for us it's a connection back to our heritage. I, I, I started learning more about Lebanon and learning more about my heritage once I tapped into the food side of it. And, and um, there's, there's no doubt that having that as a connection point um, is pretty important, I think, particularly at a time where Lebanon and the Middle East is, is going through a really rough patch. At a glance, uh, there are similarities uh, in dishes and food across the Middle East, but it's so different depending on what country you're in. Tell us a little bit about Lebanese cuisine and and um, what really stands out about it for you. Uh, it's interesting that you say that because you know when you when you're born somewhere like Australia, you notice the similarities more than the differences, and that's where I found it really hard to draw a, a you know a bold line underneath. Lebanese food that we do at Rumi. Uh, you know, if you're, you've only lived in Lebanon, you only eat Lebanese food, trying food from outside of Lebanon, you, you very, very quickly see the differences. Whereas when you're sort of Australian Lebanese and you're looking at the food, you see the similarities and it's like, ah, oh, the spices may be slightly different or the uh, technique may be slightly different. But when you're looking at, you know, cooking on charcoal is such a big part of the cuisine. It's, it's so, uh, it's so prominent in, in all across, all across the Middle East. And I suppose, you know, the spirit of Islam and, you know, the, the um, sort of golden age of, of uh, the Islamic period was able to bring the, the, that region to share similarities and, and then the Ottoman Empire, you know, was an empire that sort of, sh- you know, s- 
it, it diluted and, and spread and took and gave and it wasn't a, a um, I'm not sure what the word is, you know, say with Hellenic culture that sort of imposed as it spread, you know, people became Hellenic rather than, you know, so those regions didn't become Ottoman. The Ottomans took from them and, and gave back to them and, you know, not, not to glorify, you know, what was going on. But, uh, yeah, so um, Lebanese food for me, uh, yeah, hard, hard one to answer that one. I think uh, the freshness of it is, is um, a big standout. Um, and the, the use of vegetables uh, is something that we've sort of uh, embraced at Rumi since day one and just being able to cook vegetables in a, in a different way that weren't just a side, a side to a main, they were, um, you know, d- dishes in their own right. Well, it's an interesting point and it's something I wanted to raise with you because there's the notion of a plant-based diet or vegetarianism or veganism, you know, is seen so differently to just a, to even just a decade ago in Australia and, and yet cuisines like Lebanese, it's just common practice to eat such an array of vegetable dishes. Tell us a little bit about um, some of those sort of real hero Lebanese vegetarian dishes and why vegetables are so important to the cuisine. Well, uh, for, for, for me, uh, the vegetables played the biggest part during, during Lent. Uh, so the Lebanese Christians, you know, observe Lent and during Lent they don't uh, eat meat or and dairy products. Um, so every Lent, uh, is basically, um, you know, dish after dish of, of vegetables. So uh, it really was quite easy for us to to put those on the menu at Rumi or use use them. As an example, say, uh, slow-cooked green beans, you know, were part of it, were part of a summer fatouche. So, you know, two dishes that aren't normally combined together, but the use of the, 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 the slow-cooked beans in a fatouche was – it was just easy. I didn't have to come up with a dish first and then, then merge it with a different dish. It, there were two dishes that existed and, and went together so well. So um, the, I think one of the, the dishes that's been on at Rumi for a very long time, there's, there's two, two key things in vegetable cooking in Middle Eastern food that I love. One is eggplant always has to be cooked out. It, it, it's never slightly just on. It's, it's cooked a lot and it goes beautiful and soft and creamy. And there's a dish at Rumi, which is uh, one of very few recipes that came directly from mum. And it's, uh, you know, onions, garlic, uh, green peppers, tomato as a sort of saucy base. And then you fry eggplant separately in big chunks or, you know, cut it in half. And then you cook that in the sauce. And, the, you know, it has to be cooked and soft. And one of the challenges is uh, to make these things look look beautiful to a to a regular restaurant right where yeah you're cooking it until it shits itself that's really what you want right because that's that's the point where it turns you know so it's like how do i keep this thing looking beautiful but it's it needs to it needs to break down because that's the point where it just goes creamy and and soft uh and then the other thing is frying vegetables until they're dark brown so another dish of Rumi is the cauliflower, which has got a bit of a cult following. And, you know, I remember coming from sort of European training and starting Rumi and, you know, mind you, there's sort of none of this, that, you know, other than 
MoMA, I think Mecca Bar was around. Was, was, you couldn't really go somewhere and learn these. So we were learning on, on the job, right? We were, you know, learning how to use charcoal. We were learning what these dishes would come out like. And one of them was the fried cauliflower, which uh, was inspired by uh, Rita McCarley at Ludra at the time. And, you know, a lot of the listeners may not sort of realise that at that point, 16, 17 years ago, nobody just served cauliflower. Like, you just didn't. Like, you know, you got cauliflower Mornay, but that had gone out of fashion by then, and it was sort of the end of it, right? Otherwise, there'd be these little white boiled things as part of a medley of vegetables that came with your steak, you know? It was no, it, or, or it was a puree. So then purees were the other things that, you know, became uh, popular to do with cauliflower. But Rita came along and served cauliflower on a plate, and I was just, like, completely blown away. It's like, wow, how can you do that, you know? And... You know, it was her grandmother's recipe and it was battered and fried. And we're like, hey, mum does fried cauliflower. So when, when we opened room, we did this fried cauliflower. But, it, you know, it was, you're fried in that golden brown, typical European training. And you're looking at it and you're like, you're tasting it. It's like, this just doesn't taste right. And it's like, leave it in there. Darker, darker, darker. Almost burnt, you know. And we still have to this day, people say, oh, the cauliflower's burnt. And I say, look, it's not burnt. I can understand if you don't want it, but it's it, this is the way it's supposed to be. And that bittersweet flavour that comes from cooking vegetables really dark like that, whether they be zucchini, whether they be eggplant or cauliflower, it's 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 a real wonderful wonderful flavour. I think. What lured you to a career as a chef? Uh, it was more appealing the school, <laughs> so I uh, lied to my parents and told them I had an apprenticeship, but I just went to wash dishes. Um, I had no intention of being a chef. I just wanted to get the hell out of school. And a friend became a chef. Oh, he, he took on an apprenticeship and he said, hey, come, you know, we're looking for apprentices. And, um, you know, that's a, a long story, which we probably won't go into now. But I sort of got the bug from there. And and it was uh, just such an exciting, exciting place to be. I think that, you know, that that's what got me going to begin with. And I was a very plain eater and, and uh, the, the chef had gone next door and got some sushi and offered it to my friend who was the, the official apprentice. And my friend said, oh, no, no, thanks. I don't want any of that. And and the chef went off at him. You know, how can you be a chef if you're, you're not going to be able to try food? And so he turned to me and said, do you want some? And I shit myself. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I can't say no after that tirade. So I put some raw sea urchin in my mouth and, and really the it was so delicious and I just couldn't believe that this was a whole new world and, and really that's the sort of turning point for me and, and, and how I ate and, you know, but I had no idea and, and you know, uh, we didn't go to restaurants as a kid. We didn't have, you know, much food outside of Lebanese food. My parents owned a fish and chip shop, so we, you know, lots of fish and chips and, you know, dim sims and all the rest. And, uh, you know, the chef sent me to cool room to get an avocado and I, I, I had no idea what an avocado was. I, and I could just only think of an armadillo and I'm like, it's sort of, must, you know, I'm thinking, I see this thing that resembles somewhat an armadillo. <laughs> it must be this thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's been quite a journey, like I said. Like I said. But, uh, yeah, so I fell in love with, with food from there and, and just uh, went from one place to another trying to get a job. It was pretty hard back then in the 90s to get a job. Um, any job, let alone a cooking apprenticeship. So, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. What were the really important sort of venues or people that you worked with as you were building your career? 
there was a there was a chef, an Italian chef who I worked with, uh, called Naz Cugliari, who. Um, it was the first time I worked with anyone that just had such, who just had it, that little bit extra care in the food that he did. He was really starting to cook food that was, um, you know, learning from his parents, Italian parents. It was a, a pizza place in Albert Park in Melbourne called Ragazzi. And it was one of those very f- first um, wood-fired pizza restaurants that sort of broke the mould and, you know, paved the way for Italian pizza to change. Um, and, you know, Naz was doing food called, uh, you know, what he called casalinga, so home-style food. Um, and it just, the fact that you could take more care in the food, uh, the fact that it could be inspired by your, your family and it was so tasty um, was, was pretty uh, important to me. And then... I had dinner one time at, at Jacques Raymond, uh, and I had no idea that food could be like that. And that was it. That was I, I, I asked them to do a trial there, and I trialed a few times, and that was unsuccessful. And then, uh, again, not, not knowing anything about that part of the industry, I asked a couple of friends, and, you know, eventually they said, you've got to go to a place called SSS. That's sort of where it's at. And I'm like, I have no idea what, what this place is, but I'll – I'll, I'll go there and uh, knocked on the door and Donovan answered and, you know, anyone that knows Donovan Cook, you know, he's, uh, he's, uh, you know, when he, he answered the door and he was pretty, pretty rough in, in his response and was, you know, what do you want? And I was like, oh, well, I want to work here. And he said, well, there's no jobs. Come back in January. It was a few months later or whatever. So I came back in January and knocked on the door again and he answered, which was surprising. And, uh, you know, he's just like, you know, he seemed even less impressed this time. And he said, well, I don't know, he must have taken pity on me. He said, come on, come on in at some point. And I can't remember when, when how, how that unfolded, but I went in for a trial and it really knocked me for six. I had, you know, I just could not believe that people could work at that pace, that intensity and that standard. You know, it was it was just beyond anything I'd, I'd ever seen before. Um so you're probably starting to gather. I lived quite a sheltered life before this. Do you have any stories from what it was like in that kitchen? You know, my, my music taste was, as you know, went uh, as far as Prince and anything that Prince had, <laughs> had done. And, uh, you know, I walked into this kitchen that was, you know, blaring Led Zeppelin and Josh Emmett was there setting the pace. And it was, it was yeah, um, really incredible. Do you have any stories of um, what you learned or what you experienced in that kitchen that um, inspired you moving forward? Um, the standard. The standard was, was so unbelievably tight that um, I think it, it really uh, just changed, changed the way I work. It's the only place I've ever worked where there was no – there was no room for discussion. That was it. That that was the standard, and nothing else was going going to be uh, accepted. When did you start first thinking about opening your own restaurant and sort of the beginnings of Rumi? Um, the beginnings of Rumi happened. So I worked at Est, and then I went to Circa with Michael Lambie, and then I. Um, did a big trip overseas 
uh, I did the old Silk Road um, overland uh, by myself. That was pretty pretty big deal. Um, came back and I opened this little restaurant in Kilmore, which is just north of Metropolitan Melbourne, little country town. Um, just a little sort of bistro in in a country town that that didn't work. So that was first failure. We can notch that one up. We'll probably you probably start marking them off as I talk for the rest of this conversation. <laughs> uh, then I went back to I, I then thought I'll I'll give Greg Maloof a call and see if I go and work at Momo. So I think I went to work at Momo briefly. Then I went back to work um, at Ondine with Donovan again. And when that closed, uh, it was a bit of a crossroads. And at that point, I I was being taught how to taste for European flavours. You know, the tarragon sauce is like this and this is what the tarragon is and this is how it should come through. And it was just a little bit of a point where I thought, I don't need to learn how to taste Middle Eastern flavours. Maybe that's maybe that's what I should be doing, um, because the idea of chasing that pinnacle of of what was considered you know best best food in Australia or the world it it lost its shine at that point. I, I wasn't prepared to move away from family. That wasn't something that I, I ever wanted to do. Um, and I just I think uh, being son of migrants, I think business was too high on the agenda to. Um, be chasing fine dining accolades. And so um, I remember I made tabbouleh for the first time, I think for a staff meal, and I'd never made tabbouleh before because, you know, mum mum, mum never, you know, passed on any tradition or anything like that in, in any formal sense. And it was delicious. It looked right. It tasted great. Once I'd sort of made this idea that or come, come to this conclusion that Middle Eastern food is where I should be heading, um, the idea took a couple of forms and one was like inspired by the tea houses of the Middle East um, with, you know, food taking a secondary role um, and then uh, turned into a bar that would, would serve Middle Eastern food and, and then meeting Nat who uh, is my wife now, uh, she uh, did, and as, as she still does, gives me the confidence or gave me the confidence to go to that next step. And she she backed me, and she was uh, happy to work the floor for me at the time. And uh, that really just gave me the confidence to go to that next next level and thought about opening a restaurant. Those early years, were there, were there challenges and successes that, that you can tell us about of trying to introduce and, and raise the level and awareness of Lebanese cuisine? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, even the idea of um, food being shared at the table was really foreign to the dining public. And you'd have to basically, uh, you know, have a preamble for every table to explain, you know, in order your own food, it's shared. You know, we got to the point of sometimes saying, you know, it's like when you go to a Chinese restaurant and you order a whole lot of dishes and they come to the middle of the table and, you know, um, so this was very foreign, you know, we had, we had, we had one particular customer early, which was, I, I don't know why it stuck out in my head so much, but they insisted on ordering their own dishes. And we explained to them that the dishes are incomplete in that, in that format. And, uh, you know, this was very early days and, um, they left and the last thing she said was, you won't last very long around here. So that, that was really like 
Yeah, and even if you hated it, we're just a young couple opening a restaurant. Do you have to be so nasty, you know? So anyway, you know, we, we were sort of bumbling along and uh, people started to get it. People started to gain a little bit of popularity. And then uh, John Lethlean was writing for The Age at the time. And it was a Friday night and we were sitting um, – uh, sitting at the back of the restaurant, an empty restaurant on a Friday night, and a couple of kids come to the door, and so we we just everyone disperses, getting ready for these customers, and I thought, oh God, you know, we've not only have we got hardly anyone booked, there's kids, so like they're going to spend about two dollars each, <laughs> and uh, you know the family came in, and then John followed them, and uh, he loved it and raved about it, and and we were sort of uh, booked out from that time on. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, Brunswick was really uh, – hadn't quite turned the corner yet. We were like the first, you know, non-traditional restaurant in the area. a couple of old Thai restaurants and Indonesian restaurants and stuff like that. And we were the first new restaurant in the area. And, um, you know, we'd be booked out and people would be saying, oh, where can we go? And you'd say, oh, you have to go back down to Collingwood or Carlton or Fitzroy or somewhere like that because there was really nowhere, nowhere to send them. What's been some of the real highlights over the years? It's it's been an incredible um, sixteen years. But what's what really stands out for you? I think one of the highlights is uh, when Anthony Bourdain came for no reservations. Um, that was uh, yeah. The things like that kept happening to us that we just could not believe what was going on, and uh, ha- having Anthony in there and. Uh, not not only having him as a guest to be able to, that was the end of his shooting and to be able to sit down at the end of the night and have a chat to him. Um, and actually, incidentally at the time was uh, Matt Preston had come in with him and so oh, Matt, what have you been doing? He said, oh, we've started shooting this ridiculous show called MasterChef. I don't even know where this thing is going to go. Where this thing is going to go. You know, and he gave me a couple of examples of why he thought it was ridiculous. And, uh, yeah, we, we saw what happened there. So that, that was definitely one, one of the highlights. And really just being able to share um, share a different point of Lebanese and Middle Eastern culture um, is it's 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 an honor really to be able to do that stuff and you know we've we've had you know I've, I imported at one point Lebanese beer and wine there was a, a a craft beer called 961 out of Lebanon that you know we were able to get into 10 out of the top 100 gourmet traveler restaurants around Australia and to be able to serve that and to serve Lebanese wine and to tell people about you know another story of of Lebanese culture as opposed to you know, whatever's fed through the media as, as a one-sided story. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's the, the biggest highlight. And, you know, being able to consolidate my relationship with Nat and we got married and we've got three kids now and, you know, um, the, the restaurant is, is our life really. Has, has the Rumi changed much since the original idea and, and what you opened with to, to what we see today? Yeah. Yeah. It's changed so much. I wouldn't even know how to, articulated like the, the original idea was to have myself and an apprentice and a kitchen hand and Nat and a casual waiter you know we thought that would be the extent of what we needed to to run the business and you know there's 20 odd staff there now and um it's come it's gone through so many different uh incarnations the food got you know very sort of 
not very, but it, it was getting fussier at one point and then we sort of had to pull it back in another direction and uh, there's been times where I've been out of the business for, you know, set, you know, a certain amount of time doing other things and, you know, then you come back and you realign it in a different way and there was one point where I went to another restaurant and, and the dish was sort of um, a modern a modern dish, you know, I don't know how else to put it. And I said to Nat, I said, you know, the problem that this dish could be on at Rumi and that's not cool because that means we've just molded in with what everyone else does. And, you know, we made a, a decision then to sort of pull it back away and, and not try and fall in line with what the trends were. And, you know, because that's not how we started, but you, you, you sort of get drawn into it. And, um, being able to sort of uh, use the use the time we've been at Rumi to stay relevant somewhat, but not get sucked into each trend that comes along, it's it's a it's it's pretty it's pretty tricky. The last couple of years have been incredibly challenging for many people, especially in hospitality as well. Uh, you mentioned that um, you know you're in a different mindset when you spoke to Danny Ballant on our sister podcast Dirty Linen last year what has changed for you is are you approaching the restaurant and what you do differently out of sort of the adversity of the last couple of years um I'd love to give a much deeper answer as to you know um some profound change that's happened but I think what it's done is is just galvanize what's important and focused on focus on on the people and the and the, the the things that are important in 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 life. And when I say in life, that that doesn't mean separate to Rumi. It's you know, it's somehow you know I've I've done. There's, there's been a lot that I've done over the years, um, and it somewhat felt like um, you know I was a philanderer around town, you know, looking for the next shiniest, youngest thing, and and then realizing that in fact um you know Rumi was 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 right there standing beside us and supporting us and and it was the it was what we needed we just needed to give it more attention and 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 really get back into that and we didn't need anything else and that's probably um one of the biggest things that sort of happened partly as a result of of the pandemic but i think it was you know um it sped up something that I was already feeling. You've created this incredible uh, restaurant that's connected so amazingly, not only with the community, but for those that visit uh, Melbourne as, as well and experience your hospitality. What, what do you love about what you do? I can't conquer it. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a never ending um, project. It's, it's always changing. It's um, and you know that's probably I think if I was to do some soul searching, why, why you go looking for so many other things when you you know rather than um, doing the one thing the best you can and and establishing that in the best way it can be. Um, so you know, getting back to Rumi and and really uh, getting the best out of what that restaurant can be. And what that restaurant means to uh, to me and my family and, and to the staff. And I think what what is most, you know, the, the industry's changed a lot since since we opened. You know, I think um, staff's engagement with with restaurants now. It's taken a long time to accept that 
um, it's it's just not the way it was when when we grew up and people don't just have their job in their life they have other things in their life and you know um, that's a whole that's brought a whole new challenge to the way you run your business and the way you see your staff and you know in the early days if you know if people didn't cut themselves open for you 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 just felt like they were like so um you know they were just out to get you it was it's a real steep learning curve and you know um now you you understand that people people have mental health issues people have health issues people go through rough times and um you're not the center of the universe to to them uh and that's that's been an adjustment and so you you change the restaurant accordingly and you change the approach accordingly and um, it's a never-ending um, learning. Well, Joseph, it's been an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds to hear your story. Um, please keep in touch. We'll definitely have to catch up again soon. Oh, that'd be great. Thanks for letting me share it. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.